Matthew 16, 13 to 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what, do you, what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the word of the, of the Lord. Let's pray for the sermon right now. Um, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for our pastor. We ask, Lord, that our ears would be opened and our eyes to hear your word. Help it to sink deep into our souls so that we can live it out upon this earth. And we ask that you just be with Kyle as he goes through the message today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Pat. You may be seated. Thank you. Like um, you heard from Pat, my name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Refuge. Um, we also have the gift of having both uh, Mark Rodericks and Joe Marin um, as other pastors here that um, we aim to just lead and shepherd our church well. I hope that all of you can um, be here next week. Uh, we have um, just some exciting things we're going to be talking about. We don't want you to miss it. So try to get here um, next week at our, at our um, a church service, and we're going to have a, a lunch together and just some fun stuff we're going to be talking about. So try to come. It's going to be a great time. And also, I hope that you received at the door a, uh, a bulletin um, and a pen. Um, our, our ushers do the best to get everyone one of those things, even people that come here regularly, just so you can, if you want to take notes down and write things down, um, you can do that, things that you hear that are encouraging to you. We hope that you will utilize that. Um, also, just aim to, if you can, if you have one, bring a Bible with you, just so you know I'm not making this stuff up. Um, you can test me. The Bible instructs, actually, the congregation to test the preacher with God's word. So um, just I hope that you have a Bible. If you don't, we'll get you one. Uh, and in, no, if you don't want one right now, we, we always put this, the words on the screen, too. We're in a series right now. I hope that you're enjoying. It's called Basically Jesus. And we've been, we've been going over, basically, what are the fundamentals to the Christian faith? What is Christianity? What do we believe? And um, our series has included sermons like basically the Bible, basically God, basically man. And this week, we're actually on basically Jesus. So if you've missed some of those, you can go to our website. Uh, if you want to catch yourself up, you can go to our sermon section on our website. You'll also see a section there called resources that has a number of different kind of books that you can use to complement. This is, of course, one sermon. Um, I'm not going to be able to tell you everything that Scripture teaches about who Christ is, of course, in one sermon. That's why we give you resources if you want to learn more about these things. You can go and check those out. You actually can just click on the title of the book on our resources section. It will take you um, to a place where you can purchase it if you'd like it. But we've been in this just really, hopefully, encouraging series on what Christianity is. Um, we're aiming to define um, what are the basic beliefs and commitments of the Christian faith in life. Um, and I hope that it's been encouraging to you. So this morning, we're going to turn to Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the, the sermon series and the sermon title of this particular sermon 
is called basically Jesus. And the reason for that is because Christianity centers around Christ. Without Jesus, there is no Christian church. Um, That should be kind of obvious, I think, to all of us, maybe something that doesn't even need to be said. But I think it's important to remember that the reason we're in a Christian church this morning is because of Jesus. Jesus himself made this incredible claim. When you read the words of Christ, listen to what he said in the Gospels. He said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Now, what's he talking about here? Now, we have, if you have a Bible on your lap, this is a Bible, right? Um, There's a section that is basically put into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament begins with the Gospels and continues with various letters and whatnot, but everything before that was the the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, In our Bibles, it's Genesis to Malachi. What he was saying that, in this passage of Scripture, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, what he's saying is that the entire Old Testament Scriptures is about something. And let's, let's see what he says. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures about himself. What he's saying in this passage is that when you open the Bible, when you open the Old Testament scripture, it is about him. It's about Jesus. It's not about Abraham. It's not about Moses. It's not about Noah. It's about Jesus Christ. Very audacious claim to make, isn't that? I, it would be like, you know, imagine myself standing up before you and you know, everything that you read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, by the way, is about Kyle. You might not want to come to this church anymore. You might think I'm a little bit nuts. Love him or hate him, you can't escape the fact that Jesus Christ demands even our modern, our postmodern minds' attention. We still think about him. We still talk about him. Even outside of Christian church in the secular world, everywhere we go, you have to answer a question about Christ. There was this really great great quote that I once read um, that basically says this, every single time, even an atheist dates his checks, he proclaims the birth of Christ. Right? The rulers, and I know like nowadays we're trying to get out of that, like the BCE, it's still the same date though, it's still the same year. The rulers, and I'll continue, the rulers of countries, both east and west, regardless of their religions, use his birthday. And unwittingly, all of us declare his birth on letters, documents, and date, and, um, every time we date books. Isn't that interesting? After 2,000 years, after the Industrial Revolution, right, after the first car, after the first flight, after all these interest, wars, nuclear bombs, all these incredible events, moon landings, after computers, after Steve Jobs, right? after this thing, well, it's not in my pocket, but like this little thing in my pocket that has more power in it than they had when they rocketed a man to the moon. Right? It's got more computer power. After this, the sexual revolution, after infanticide, after Watergate, after Kennedy and King and Gandhi, After all of this, you think Jesus Christ would sort of just kind of shrink that back into oblivion, and we wouldn't be talking about him anymore, but we do. His figure is luminous. His person, his wisdom, his works, his church continues. And even 
to this day, he lives on. And we all of us, everyone in this room and everyone in this world, still have to answer this question. Who do you say I am? You see, the answer to that question will change your life. It will. Who do you say I am? Now, most people, I think, in the world have at least heard of Jesus and they have some sort of answer for that. But what does the Bible say? Who is Christ? Who is he? So this morning, I want to present to you who Jesus and his followers claimed him to be. And I want to look at four incredible claims of Scripture that you hear from the mouth of Jesus and from the people that knew him best. And there are four things. So there, here's where you can use that pen now, right? Jesus, number one, is God in the flesh. Number two, he's perfect. Isn't that great? He's God in the flesh. He's perfect. He's alive. And he's Lord. He's God in the flesh. He's perfect. He's alive. And he's Lord. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. When you come to grips with these things about Jesus Christ, when you believe these things about Jesus Christ, you'll never be the same. If these things are true, now we don't want to follow myths, we don't want to follow made-up stories, we don't want to hope these things are true, if, but if these things are indeed true and real, it changes everything. And we've got to contend with this. We have to face this, all of us. So let's look at this first one. Now, this morning, I'm just going to demonstrate to you what Scripture says. At the end of this, you might think, well, how do I know the Bible's right? And that's a great question. This whole thing is a journey. You've got to continue. I'm not saying or claiming that I'm going to resolve every one of your questions this morning. But we have to at least contend with what Jesus said about himself and what those who knew him best said about him. And the first thing that we see in Scripture is that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Now, right off the bat, the postmodern mind laughs. You've already lost me <laughs> with point number one. Jesus is God in the flesh. But according to Scripture, Jesus, we'll get to the flesh part in a second, Jesus is God. Not like what we think about God, like God, God. Jesus is the God. Not what we think is like we're all kind of God, we're all connected, we're all one, you know, everything is God, like this kind of Eastern stuff. And that, but like, not like that kind of idea. Like Jesus Christ, according to Scripture, is the only God and we're not him. And his creation is not him. Now again, the Bible could be wrong, but this is what he claimed to be and this is what his followers claimed, to be, claimed him to be. He is the one and only God of all things. We are not him. Jesus is him. <laughs> Incredible. Christianity does not exist, by the way, if this is not true. And hopefully I'll explain to you why. If Jesus is not God, he's just another enlightened figure, right? Just another really kind of clever philosopher some distinguished moralist. Wise, we would be wise to listen to him. But if he's not God, he's just like everybody else in the world that had a smart idea. Right? That's just it, right? If, if he's not God, 
we can separate his wisdom from his person. It's not about him at that point. Just like the philosophy of like Immanuel Kant or um, Karl Barth or, or any one of these figures. It's not really about them. It's what, what did they think? What did they believe? How, does they, how do their ideas change my life? It's not about them. It's about the truth, or at least the truth that we perceive, passed on to us. So if Jesus isn't God, we just take some things of what he said, as we would with anyone else that has some kind of enlightened mind, we take those ideas and we move on from him. And we build off of those ideas. That person, even their ideas, aren't the end of themselves. Our job is to take their wisdom and truth and add to it what they didn't know, right? And that's what we do. That's what science does. That's what philosophy does. That's what literature does. We take all the smart people that we know about and we make them better. We learn from them. But Jesus said, I am not just a source of good ideas. He says, I am the truth. I am the truth. I am God. So we don't build off of Jesus' ideas. Jesus is the end in himself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. What we said about God, now if you listen to the sermon a few sermons ago, we talked about what Scripture says about God, that he's creator, that he's sovereign, all these different things. Everything that we said about God in that sermon is who Jesus is. Isn't that incredible? Jesus also is the proof that we need to know that there is a God and what he's like. Without Christ, we would be left to guess, to hypothesize. And scripture even says that we can do that in Romans chapter 1. If God never appeared to us, we could still have some kind of vague idea that we came from somewhere, that some kind of force made us and put us here. That's what Romans chapter 1 teaches and other places in Scripture. But Jesus puts flesh on the bones. He doesn't just prove to us that there is a God. He shows us who he is and what he's like. And without that, we would be left without explanation. John chapter 1, verse 18, it says this about Jesus. No one has seen God at any time except Jesus, he explains him. Now, that might seem a little tricky. He defines him is another word that we could say. In, in the Greek text, the word is exegesis. It's where we, we get the word exegesis from. In other words, if we want to know who God is and what he's like, we need to look at Christ. He's the central figure that defines Christ and defines God, and the reason for that is because he is God. Without Jesus, we could not be certain of anything about God at all, except maybe a few general vagaries. Whether he's good or evil, whether he's a person or some kind of cosmic force. Without Christ, we wouldn't know. But Jesus, when Jesus appears, he opens the curtain and shows us definitively that there is a God and who he is, what he's like, and what his plan and purpose is for us. He reveals that to us. So he opens the curtain of heaven, and he reveals to us the creator of all things. 
Now, how do we know this? Well, first of all, let's look at Christ's testimony. John chapter 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word, according to John chapter 1, is God. Now, this is kind of, how do you understand this? What does, they, what does he mean by Word? Is, is, kind of, is this like some kind of analogous thing? I'm not even going to get into that right now. All I want to conclude on John chapter 1 is that they're saying that this kind of Word is a divine Word. It's God himself. The Word is God. Jesus Christ is the Word because later on in the same chapter of John chapter 1, it says, and the Word became flesh. So the Word who is God, and if you keep reading John chapter 1, who is also the creator of all things, that Word who created all things, who is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. So whoever the Word is, we know it's God, and we know who the Word is because John tells us that it's Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the Word God become flesh. Titus chapter 2, Paul said this of Christ. He said, Jesus is our great God and Savior. Titus 2, 13. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one, and if you have seen me, you have seen God. In John 14, 9. So we know by the testimony of Christ, by the testimony of his followers, who they at least thought him to be and who he claimed to be. We also know based on the authority that he possessed. Jesus had the sort of authority that only God would have. The kind of authority that you and I don't have. Like, for example, he created things out of nothing, according to John chapter, chapter 1 in the book of Hebrews. He spoke things that weren't in existence and they came into existence. I can't do that. <laughs> Can you? Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says, not only did he create us, but he sustains us. That means that my heart keeps beating in my chest because Jesus is keeping it beating. He hold, All the science that we observe, he holds it together so that it actually works and can be observed. That's who Christ is, according to Scripture. In, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, he had the authority to forgive sins. Isn't that interesting? They were so upset by this claim, the, or these early religious leaders, that they wanted to stone him to death because by this claim he was making himself out to be God in Mark chapter 2. He had the, the authority of final judgment of all living things. John chapter 5 verse 22 says this. In other words, Jesus Christ is the judge of all living things. You see, only God has given that authority to Scripture so that we know, at least according to the Bible, that Jesus Christ is more than just a man. He's God. <clears throat> but Jesus also possessed the divine nature. That's the third thing we have to observe here. He possessed power over nature. He possessed power over disease, over demons, over death. This is the testimony of all the Gospels. He had supernatural knowledge. He knew what was in the hearts of men. We, we even uh, are told in Matthew 28 that he is everywhere present at the same time. I will be with you, all of you, even to the ends of the earth, he says. So this is more than just a man, more than just a baby born in a manger. 
This is God in a diaper, in swaddling clothes. You know that Jesus accepted worship. If you know the Bible, you know that you're not supposed to do that unless you're God. Angels were worshipped in Scripture, and you know what they did? Every time, if they were good angels and not fallen ones, they said, um, don't do that. I'm going to get in trouble. Can you get up? I'm not God. And they weren't worshipping the angel. They th- Angels are so beautiful. They thought it was God, but the angel's like, whoa, <laughs> you're mistaking me for someone else. Okay, I'm not him. Get up. Worship God only. The Bible in Exodus chapter 20 says, you shall worship only God. It's the first commandment. Right? Oh, no, wait. The second? Yeah, the second commandment. I should know that. <laughs> you shall worship only God. But yet, and Jesus himself told Satan, you remember when Satan was tempting him in the wilderness to eat and jump off things and all this? And he said, and then, then, um, then he said, if you will worship me, Satan was saying this to, to Christ, if you worship me, and I'll give you all these things. And he says, you worship God only. And you're, an, you're a fallen angel. You only worship God. So even at the, the mouth of Christ, we're given testimony that you only worship Jesus. Yet over and over again throughout the Bible, in John chapter 10, Philippians chapter 2, in the book of Revelation, over and over and over again, the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All of the angelic hosts, all of creation in Philippians chapter 2, bow a knee and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that tells me one thing very simple. That at least according to the Bible, Jesus is God. He's not just a man. He's God. He's timeless. John chapter 8, verse 58, before Abraham was and I am. That's a good transition. Jesus has given the titles of God. He's called the Lord. He's called God. He's called the Messiah. He's called the great I am. By the way, what was the name that God told Moses? I am. Before Jesus told the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am, and they wanted to kill him for it. Why? Not because he had bad grammar. Right? Because he was claiming the name of God, the one who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush on Mount Sinai. They knew what he was saying. He was claiming to be the Lord, the God of Israel. So you might not believe it, but we can't say that the Bible doesn't say it and that Christ didn't claim it. Jesus is God, and Jesus is God in the flesh. So Jesus is God, but Jesus is also man. This is important too. John chapter 1, verse 14, we read it. The Word became flesh. The word became flesh, and he lived among us. He dwelt among us. Philippians chapter 2, who, being in very nature God, they're talking about Christ in Philippians 2, who, who was it, what's clearer than that? Christ, who was in very nature God himself, right? Who, being in very nature God, did not regard equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he, he thought it more important to humiliate himself by becoming a man and then dying, something that God could not do because he's God. Right? That was more important to him. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So Jesus, if Jesus is God, now follow the logic, if Jesus is God, that means that he existed before his birth. Does that make sense? 
He became man, but he always was. He was the creator. He existed before time, according to Scripture. So Jesus pre-existed his becoming flesh, if that makes sense. He existed um, before time as we know it, before creation. He created all things. He even appeared to people in the Old Testament. We know this because they worshipped him. And who do you only worship? God, right? Joshua worshipped him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did this. We see it all over the Bible where this angel, it's called the angel of the Lord, shows up and and people start worshipping him. And the reason we know it's Christ is because he's okay with it. (laughs) Angels aren't okay with that if they're angels, if that makes sense. But this same Christ pre-existed before his birth. He became a man. Theologians, scholars over time call this the incarnation, right? The incarnation. Becoming flesh, that's all that means. The God who by very nature and definition has no beginning or ending. The God who does not change. A God who doesn't become anything. We become stuff. We become men. We become smart. Well, some of us. Right? We become things. We We are tomorrow what we weren't today. But God doesn't become anything. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This same God who's got no beginning or ending, who doesn't change, doesn't become anything, this God became something. He became man. He humiliated himself, lowered himself, according to the Philippian church that Paul was writing to. He was really a man. He wasn't half man. There are different ideas about what this means throughout church history. He wasn't half man and half God like some Pegasus. He didn't have like the mind of God and the body of a man. Um, he, wasn't, he wasn't just a man that God was helping. And, and a lot of like modern day cults will believe this, that he wasn't God, he was just a man and God just blessed him. Right? But he wasn't just God sort of like in some kind of ghost body that wasn't really flesh. According to Scripture, Jesus Christ was 100% man, 100% God at the same time. It is a mystery. We don't understand how that's possible, but that is the testimony of Scripture. Athanasius was an early church father. That means he lived in the first few hundred years after Christ. He said it best. He became what he was not, and he continued to be what he always was. That's the testimony of Athanasius, the early church father. And by the way, the proof that, that Jesus being God wasn't made up 400 years ago like that, the message that we're told in the Da Vinci Code, right? That Constantine came, cooked up this scheme that they would say Jesus is God so that he could rule the world. Athanasius, the church fathers, people who knew and walked with Jesus said the same thing about him. So it wasn't made up hundreds of years later. Jesus is God in the flesh. We're going to see at the end why this is important. But let's continue. Number two, Jesus is perfect. What I mean by this, that this means a few things, but what, what, what I want to focus in on is that Jesus never sinned. He was perfectly righteous and pure and holy, always, in his humanity. So his human being, when he became man, never rebelled against the divine nature that was also in him. He never, we know this in scripture, he never asks for the Father's forgiveness, even though he even tells us that when we pray, pray like this, 
all you good Catholics. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By the way, I'm not going to just pick on Catholics. It's an Episcopalian thing too, right? All right, so we got all the high churches. They, we know this, and if you're an AA. Um, so, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus himself said, when you pray, ask the Father for the forgiveness of your sin. But no recorded prayer of Christ ever includes him confessing any sin to the Father. Okay? Jesus Christ was perfect. No one could prove him in John chapter 8 guilty of any sin at all. His food in John chapter 4 was to do the will of God. When tempted by Satan for 40 days to sin... He remained innocent, and he rebuked that evil liar. Isn't that true? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 reminds us that Jesus was tempted, tested in every way, just like us, yet without sin. So this man, this God-man, was perfectly obedient to the Father's will, just like you and I were always supposed to be but weren't. See, now we're getting to something that I hope is powerful later, okay? He maintained perfect obedience to the divine will and prerogative, and he prayed, not my will, but thy will be done, when he was facing the most horrific form of human torture and also divine abandonment. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And what was the Father's will? 1 Peter chapter 1. Why was Jesus born? What was the will of God, the divine prerogative that he was always faithful to and obedient to? Well, Peter tells us, the apostle that jumped off a boat into the water and swam to him when he saw him alive. This is what Peter says. For you know that it was not with perishable things like silver and gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but you were saved by the blood of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, he was the lamb without blemish, the perfect lamb. And he was chosen before the creation of the world for this purpose. That means that when God was sprinkling the stars into existence, before the first heartbeat ever beat its first beat, he knew he would have to save it and die for it before he finished forming Adam from the dust of the ground, he knew he would have to die for that same man. See, it was in the mind of God before the foundations of the earth that he would have to suffer and die to save the one that he loved and created. You see, he was obedient to the point of death. And consequently, because he was inwardly righteous, because he's God in the flesh, and because he is perfect... Number three, he's alive. Jesus is alive. We're going to talk about this. Jesus Christ robbed death of his power. He opened heaven's treasure. That's who Christ is. He's the living God-man who went through death and came out alive on the other side. That's who Christ is. According to scriptures, the resurrection of Jesus both happened... Number one, it's real. In other words, it's a historical event. Number two, 
It had a purpose. There was a reason for his resurrection. Let's talk about it. Let's look at the event first. It happened. It's real. Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us from the first eyewitnesses. I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, deciding to write an orderly account so that you might know with certainty the things that have been taught. What Luke is saying here is that this isn't something we made up. The resurrection of Christ has evidence. He's proving it. He's demonstrating it. The Bible doesn't want us to leave our brains at the front door and just kind of hope this all happens. He's, he's writing the gospel to demonstrate to us that it did happen. The early followers didn't want to follow something made up just as much as we don't want to follow it either. Okay? They wanted to know the truth. They wanted to know what happened. Peter says this, too, to compliment Luke. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyeball witnesses of his majesty. He doesn't say eyeball witnesses, but I want you to understand something. What he means there is that with their eyes, they saw the resurrected Christ. Thomas touched him. They knew it happened because they saw him. There's evidence. Christ appeared alive ten times in ten different places, and in one instance, he appeared to 500 people at the same time alive. And friends, some people suggest that he never really died. Well, what we know of the crucifixion, if Jesus appeared to anyone in that condition, they would never have thought that he rose from the dead. They would have assumed because of his condition that he was beaten so badly, bruised and scarred and bleeding, barely able to walk or talk. No one would think that this sort of figure was alive from the dead. They would think that he never died or was about to. So he would never have been able to pull this off if he never really died. The disciples didn't expect him to be alive. That's an important point. They were ready to spice his body. A lot of times people will suggest, well, they, they, like this was just kind of, they emotionally worked themselves up because they thought that he wasn't going to die. So they just imagined his appearing. But none of them were even expecting him to be alive. They were taking, remember the women went to go to the tomb to spice his body, and they were shocked that he was missing. If the disciples stole his body, that's another theory, someone stole it, right? Well, all of these disciples, all 11 of them, barring Judas, suffered and died for the testimony that Christ had risen from the dead. Now, maybe one person would die for a lie, but 11? See what I mean? And not only them, but many other people, the 500 that Jesus appeared to, too, went to their deaths claiming that Christ was alive. It says in, old, it says in ancient um, Near Eastern histories, not re- written by Christians, but by Jews and Romans, that, that there is this group called Christians that follow Christ, the way it's called, that claim that Christ is alive. It says this in Josephus and, and, and Roman histories and all these different things, a recording the fact that the early church believed that Jesus Christ was alive from the dead. This isn't just the testimony of the Bible, in other words. We have to contend with these things. You see, the resurrection of Christ happened. 
but it happened for a reason. Okay, big deal. Christ rose from the dead. Was he just kind of get, trying to get out of here because he, we're nuts, right? Or just kind of showing off his power? Why did he rise from the dead? There are three reasons according to the Bible that the Bible gives. The first reason is this. You'll see these up here, okay? The first reason is this. It vindicates the life of Christ. And what I mean by that is it establishes the Father's verdict that Christ is perfect and righteous. It's almost like the Father's approval of Christ. 1 Timothy 3.16, He appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That means that he was declared righteous by the Spirit. How did that happen? How, did, how was he vindicated by the Spirit? Well, Romans tells us, chapter 1, verse 4, And who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection. So the Spirit vindicated the Son by resurrecting him from the dead. And number two, this vindication gives him judgment over all creation. Number two, Acts chapter 17, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. We know that there is a God because of Christ, and we know that, that we're accountable to that God because Christ has risen from the dead. That's our proof. That's the vindication. So the resurrection of Christ vindicates his life. It establishes his authority. But you know what else it does? There's some good news in this. It vindicates you and I by faith in his death and resurrection. You see, what vindicates us? What makes us righteous? If we're all guilty, according to Romans chapter 3, separate from God because of sin, how do we resolve this problem? The resurrection of Christ vindicates, makes righteous anyone who trusts in him by faith. That's the good news. That means the innocent life and righteous standing of Christ that we know he has because he res God resurrected him from the dead we will get to, we'll share in it with him by faith when he resurrects you and I from the dead. That's the gift to us. Romans chapter 4, he was delivered to death for our sin and he was resurrected for our vindication, our justification, our righteousness. In other words, so that God would be right with us so that you are right with God. Christ was risen from the dead. I want to talk about something real quick. You know Thomas? He gets a bad rap. Doubt in Thomas. I won't believe it until I touch his, touch his you know, wounds and his side and all this. I want you to understand something about Thomas. He wasn't just a skeptic. The reason, for the, the reason why he asked, why is he asking to touch a scar? You can repeat a scar. Someone can, you know, you put a scar on me here, I could put that on you on your body, right? Why not, like, I want to see a, that freckle that he had on his back so that I know it's him. He's asking to see, he wants to know, and here's why. The Old Testament teaches that if you hang on a, on a, on a tree as a, an execution, you're under God's curse. It also teaches that if you emerge from behind a stone in death, that you are actually emerging because your death was an injustice. You're dying for someone else's sin, in other words. So, like Daniel, for example, was innocent, thrown in the lion's den, the rock was put over him, and then he emerged innocent. For Thomas, 
He knew that if Jesus was alive, now here's the principle. If Jesus was alive, he was dying for someone else's sin and not for his own. Isn't that amazing? He wasn't just a skeptic. He wanted to know if he had a savior. He wanted to know if the problem of his sin was taken care of. Jesus is risen. He's alive. Jesus, the God-man, is perfect. He's the God-man. He is perfect. He is risen. And finally, he is Lord. Let's talk about this. And Scripture describes what it means that God is Lord or Jesus is Lord in three ways. We've already talked about these, so I'm going to blast through them. The first way is that he alone, Christ alone, is the only object of worship. That means all of creation, you and I, the trees, the sky, everything else around us, only worships Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Philippians chapter 2, the name of Jesus Christ, every every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is the sole object of worship, the only God, the only Lord. And we have to ask ourselves a question, don't we? What do we worship? Who do we credit with the source of our life and happiness? What do we need most? You see, that's our God right there. That's what we worship. See, is it God? Is it Christ? Or is it something else? So Jesus is Lord in that he is the only object of worship. He's Lord in that he is the sole sovereign and judge of all creation. Ephesians chapter 1. He raised Christ from the dead seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in this age, but in the one that is to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over all things. Jesus Christ is absolute king over all things. That's what it means that he is Lord. Is he our king? Is he yours? Who's the boss? Hey. Some of you, if you're in your 30s, will know what I'm talking about there. Who's your king? I hope it's the Lord Jesus Christ who lives and reigns. The sovereign judge of all creation right now. You know, by the way, he sits at the right hand of God as the God-man. Why is that important? Well, who was supposed to rule over creation? Adam, us, but we blew it. But Jesus won it back. And scripture says over and over again, when we put faith in him, we get back everything we lost. All of his rights and privileges that he won because he was obedient like we were supposed to be, all of those things that we lost are given back to us. We are co-heirs with Christ. We get that ruling position back. That's why the Bible says you will judge angels. Okay? He's the only object of worship. He is the sole sovereign and king of all creation. And number three, he is the only savior. That he is Lord means that he is savior and that there is salvation in nothing and no one else, not even yourself. Buddha won't save you. Muhammad won't save you. Religions and philosophies won't save you. Faith in Christ the savior will. And that's it. The Bible teaches very clearly that sin results in an eternal separation from God. And Hebrews 2 explains this. Since the, the children 
Since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and I, he too shared in their humanity. That's why he became man. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That's the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. That's you and me. That's people. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he could represent them, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that that he might make atonement for their sin. That means that Christ, being made like us, is the only way that God's anger towards sin can be satisfied. Because God's anger towards sin is put on us through death. And Christ is the lamb. He's the substitute. He's the pleasing sacrifice that satisfies what we owe God. He dies for it in our place. The Bible teaches clearly that sin results in eternal separation from God. It calls, it, it calls this place hell. It's a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where we will hear, if we are without Christ, depart from me, worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Or we will hear, enter, into your rest. And friends, in Scripture, to be made right with God, to have the death that's put on us be put on Christ for our sins to be forgiven so that we'll never have to hear those fateful words depart from me, there is only one solution in Scripture. There are not many roads up the mountain. We're not all grabbing different parts of the elephant, describing the same beast, if you know what I mean. It is faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus as the only solution, the only vindication of our lives. That's it. Jesus as God and man can represent both of us. The God-man can represent us to God and can represent God to us. He can satisfy that divine penalty and never have to die again because he's not just a man, he's the God-man. And you can read all about that, by the way. Write this down, Hebrews chapter 7 through 10. Only the innocent, perfect, vindicated God-man who died for sinners in their place can save them. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one can come to the Father except through me. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no other name except the name of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, 5, there is only one mediator between God and man, the man. Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3, verse 18, we all know 16, but we don't really like 18 so much because it says this, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The mediator, the God-man, who is in the flesh, who is perfect, who died but is alive, who is Lord, can save you and will save you, will give you your life back. He'll reveal to you all the reasons why you were on this earth, all the answers that you've always been looking for your whole life. They're right there. He holds them out to you. You see, Christianity is basically Jesus. That's who it is. That's what it is. Would you pray with me, friends? God, we know that your word says Jesus is God in the flesh. He's perfect. He's alive. And he is Lord. 
I pray that he would be the sole object of our worship, that we, he, we would submit to him daily as the king of all creation, that we would recognize that he's the only acceptable sacrifice for our sin and reconciliation with you. Oh God, that we would not ignore him, that we would decide who the son of man is. Is he a liar? Is he a scholar? Is he crazy? Is he virtuous? Just these things? Or is he Lord? I pray, Lord, that we would say, like Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're not John the Baptist. You're not a nice guy. You're not smart or a wise philosopher. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the promised one sent to save us from our sin. Oh God, that we would profess faith in Christ and be reconciled to you. Oh, and how wonderful Jesus' response. Simon, Simon, blessed are you. Blessed. God, that's what we've been looking for our whole lives. Happiness, purpose, wholeness. When we know that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, we get all those things. We are blessed. Friend, if you are coming to faith in Christ right now, cry out to God, God, save me, I'm a sinner, I believe in you. I trust that Christ is my Lord and Savior that he is my substitute. And God, for the rest of us, I pray, Lord, that we would daily remember basically Jesus. Bless us now as we take communion in Jesus' name. Amen.